Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the show. My guest today, Jacob Hawley, started his stand-up career at the tender age of 21 and in the last four years has gone on to perform hundreds of gigs all across the country. Finalist in the BBC New Comedy Awards of 2017 from a field of roughly 700 hopefuls down to the final six, which in the past has been the achievement of many well-known British greats such as Peter Kay, Alan Carr and Lee Mack among others. Jacob has also won the King Gong Award at the Comedy Store here in London and at just 25 has proven he's well on his way to establishing himself as a regular face in comedy here in the city and hopefully worldwide eventually. Uh, Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I thought we could start off with a bit of a moan. As I say, I uh, so I did like a little bit of research and just recently I've had the worst food poisoning in my entire life. Have you actually? Yeah, like literally just the other day. And I, well, could, do you want me asking which day was it? Because I had food poisoning um, last, last week on Thurs, Thursday night. Right. I was at Honest Burger in Shoreditch, okay. and I had this dodgy burger, and I just got turned inside out for the next twenty four hours. Jeez. And I was always one of these people that said it was bollocks beforehand, kind of thing. That, yeah. Oh, you, yeah, don't worry about sell by dates and all that kind of stuff. And so I thought uh, I, I noticed that you'd had a similar experience, and thought I'd give you the opportunity to publicly shame whoever is responsible. I will publicly shame myself. Oh, really? <laughs> Poison myself. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I came back from holiday and I had some uh, some reduced mints, and uh, yeah, the saving that I made on that mint was not worth the next forty eight hours. Let me tell you that. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. And it's, it's it's not even the first time I've done it. I've poisoned, I've poisoned myself with rice before. Right. Genuinely, I've I've had I've I've had a, a very embarrassing incident at a Jamie T concert. Where I had to leave very quickly because, yeah, uh, yeah earlier in the day, it comes on quick, doesn't it? It does yeah. come on quick. And you know what? Uh, you know, f- at first, at, at that concert, I remember, I, I thought I thought I'd had my drink spiked because you go so lightheaded and fevery. I, I genuinely thought I, you know, I'd accidentally taken something. Yeah. And I, you know, at first I was like, oh, this is all right actually, <laughs> and then obviously it's not all right, and yeah. Yeah, next uh, next thing you're lying on the ground, like kind of, yeah, holding your stomach, Jeez. really struggling. Yeah. Um, so I'll start off you know, on your journey back at uh, university. So I believe you went to Middlesex, and a little fact that I found particularly interesting was that 
you wanted to do stand-up comedy, and so you decided to establish uh, the, com- the Comedic Society for your university. The, yeah, Middlesex Comedy Society. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And I just thought it was really interesting that, you know, the fact that you had the initiative to go and create this thing, and I wondered if you could maybe expand on it. What was, how did that go, building that thing? Was yeah. it successful by the end of it? Um, we, we won an award, actually. I forget, what did we win an award for? I think we won an award for maybe Best Student Activity or Best Student Event. It was it was something. So I mean, within within comedy, the 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 student comedy society is is like a a well trodden path towards doing stand up. So uh, particularly um, at Cambridge University, that's probably the best example. So Cambridge University has the Footlight Society, as it's called, and that that is you know a full institution now. That they they are every year they're at the Edinburgh Fringe and and other um, other festivals. I, I think recently they toured around America. You know, every year they and it's very well structured. They have a president, a treasurer. They have people that take it in turns. They do. They have stand ups. They do plays. They do all sorts. So it's to me, and it was my mate uh, Dave, Dave Duckworth. We, um, yeah, we, we we were both quite keen on comedy. We'd, we'd done sort of comedy acting. I'd obviously wanted to do stand up for a long time, wanting to start doing it. So we set up the Middlesex Comedy Society. We, we managed to get about probably about ten or ten or twelve other people. And these were various people who either people who wanted to do sketches or people who were interested in trying stand up, um, and so we'd sort of meet and we'd sort of you know practice stand up. That you know uh, that that's when I started at twenty one. I didn't really start on the circuit until I was about twenty two. So I've only really been on the circuit for about three years. But yeah, I start I started doing the the Middlesex Comedy Society, and we set we set it up, and it was you know the, com- compared to what I've heard about Footlights and, and other university comedy societies. I mean, we were a shambles, you know. <laughs> and it, what, I think what, what I really underestimated is that no one else really wanted to do stand-up as much as me and Dave did. Um, was Dave good? Yeah, Dave was great. He, 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 um, he, was, he was brilliant. There was, most of the shows, he was, he was you know, the, the best one on. He was fantastic. Um, and he, he was really good because he, he was great at just bouncing off the audience. And he, he was just really... He's, and he still is. He's a really naturally funny person. Um, but yeah, we. I mean, it was it was just kind of us dragging other people to do something that that they probably weren't. You know, they probably said they were up for it at a party or something, and then weren't really that 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 into it. Um, but we'd still, you know, we still had the 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 administrative endeavour, and you to, managed to pull in an audience. Yeah, we did, and that, that, that's something we did really well. I, I think it's just because. Um, I, we we had quite a captive audience because obviously we were on a theatre arts course, so they you know everyone was kind of interested in seeing that kind of thing anyway. Um, a lot of the people that were involved in the society, uh, myself definitely not included in this, but a lot of them were quite popular on the course, so they they could sort of pull friends in. Um, so yeah, they, I mean me and Dave founded that. It, it did slow. It it died. You know when we when we left, and I, I really wish we could have left something that would have at least. You know, just just giving people an opportunity because because like I said, I mean the the thing with the comedy industry at the moment is that there there are too many performers, not enough audience, not enough clubs, and that is what's running the, the it makes the industry so difficult to make it work for yourself, especially in terms of making a living. Whereas in that microcosm, it, you know, at our university and in terms of that society, it's the only place in the world where it's the complete opposite. There's loads of people up for watching comedy. There just wasn't enough people who wanted to see it, and it, you know, anyone else would have said, "Oh, you know, who cares? I'll just do an hour." You know, they and we we did we didn't have the materials to do that. And we didn't have the skill to do that. Thank God we didn't try. But um, but yeah, that, so that was my first kind of go at it before I went out and uh, 
got on the circuit, so to speak. S- successful first step. Um, you said that you've always wanted to be a comedian. I just wondered if you could kind of give us a little insight into what your life was like growing up. You know, like how was comedy? How did comedy play a role in your family scenario, for example? I think I think um, I think when I say that I've always wanted to be a comedian, it probably uh, probably makes people think I'm a lot more damaged than I actually. Am. <laughs> <laughs> um, my my dad was really into comedy. My dad uh, is into Monty Python and all that kind of stuff. So he, he would always have me watching stuff like that. Um, Faulty Towers, I remember as well. We we used to have a caravan we used to go to on holiday. Uh, we had a caravan by the south coast and we used to go there and we'd go there for the whole six weeks of the summer holidays. And my mum... We're mom, where in the south coast? After it, was, it, was, um, it was sort of between two little towns called Hythe and Dimchurch. Right. So it's kind of near Folkestone. Right. Um, and, yes, yeah, so me, me and my sister would go down there with my mum and we, we'd stay there for the whole six weeks. And my dad would come on weekends. And, like, sort of Friday night, they you know, the the excitement would extend as far as having fish and chips <laughs> and then my dad putting on Faulty Towers or something like that and I'd, I'd sort of lay on the floor in hysterics laughing at it. And uh, and so, yeah, and, and that, you know, get, getting a bit older, I mean, my, my first sort of exposure to stand-up, I was on a camping holiday with one of my mates and his girlfriend and uh, she, I, we were quite young, we were only about sort of 12 or 13 and she lent me her iPod and she had like a DVD rip of uh, Ricky Gervais's politics show. And that was my first time I'd ever really uh, been exposed to stand-up at all. And I, I, I was just hooked. And I, I couldn't believe how much I liked it. And I, I, I would listen to it like music. And I would, le- I would learn every single word and every beat to it as if it was a song. And I'd play it to people as if it was music as well and expect them to sort of, you know, and obviously stand-up out of context is the worst thing in the world. So it, it wouldn't get a very good reaction. But So, yeah, I, I, that, that's sort of how I first got into it. And I, I think I've, I thought I really, I really... I always really liked the idea of, of you know, like... Like what Ricky Gervais did in terms of becoming like a writer performer, so having the writing ability to do sitcoms and also being able to do stand up. And I think when I got to the age that I was looking at university courses, I, I was sort of um, the the sort of thing I sort of tried to decide was whether I wanted to learn to perform or whether I wanted to learn to write. And I think the way that I went, I probably learned to perform more than I learned to write, and that's something now that I'm I'm sort of catching up on. It actually leads into my next question with you, which was... So the first time I actually watched you perform, it was at the Secret Comedy Club. I was there with my girlfriend Top one Secret, night. yeah, yeah, Top yeah. Secret, yeah. yeah. Like, really good club. It tends to be where I, I've been in the past. Um, and, you know, you you looked like a younger guy. You took the piss out of yourself for being a younger guy. Yeah. The one thing I was really impressed with was just how, like, how much presence you had on stage. And, like, you know, you seemed to be extremely confident. You You played the audience... And it, you know, it's hard enough for people to just do public speaking, let alone stand-up comedy. And because you started so young, I just wondered where that manifested. Like, how did that come about for you to be so uh, prolific at it at such a such an early stage? Um, I think I think you just it's. I mean, here's the thing. I I I when when I started, you know, like I said, I was sort of 21 when I started doing it, and I was 22 when I sort of started doing proper gigs outside the university and I thought I thought that was really young now I know people who started at sort of 15 or 16 or something insane like that um there's a guy who I know who I really like called Ahir Shah he uh, he was nominated for the um, best newcomer award at Edinburgh this year and, he, and he's incredible right he's and and he is so you know He's so far ahead of me. <laughs> like he's he's in, he's so, and and I'm not saying in terms of achievement. He is in terms of achievement, but he's so good. 
And he's literally, I think he's like six months older than me or something depressing like that. But he's, <laughs> he has got like something like, he started insanely young. And it's, I think more and more nowadays, you, you, you're, you're getting a lot of people starting an awful lot younger. Um, Even think, if it's in front of a camera at home, right? On YouTube well, or whatever. Yeah, I suppose that's the next thing. I suppose, I suppose that is the, the... I suppose that is the way it's going. Um, I, I heard a thing the other day that all the American comedians that are attached to HBO or something are each launching their own podcast, you know, as a way to have that continued... Uh, audience development with their fan base and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, So that's effectively a grown-up version of a YouTube show, right? It's like yeah. a, a way for you to, to be on the airways and for people to hear you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing the thing with that, I think, is, you, you know, you, you, you're trying to build a following, right? I, I think for most of us, that's, that's what we're trying to do. And I think... I was talking to another comedian about this because you, you know you, sometimes um, that's kind of happened with the two of us. You know, sometimes I'll be I'll be lucky enough that someone will have enjoyed what I've done at a show, and they'll come up to me afterwards and say, "Oh, I really enjoyed that." And you know, obviously, in the moment, you're just really thankful and really grateful, and it's a really nice feeling. But at the back of your mind, there's, there's that business thought of, "Okay, how do I hold?" <laughs> no, but there is. Is it how do I hold on to this person? Yeah. How do I? How do I? you know make this part of an audience that i'm building and i think the, th- the thing with that is like you say you, you you constantly have to be giving something yeah you know and we're, we're, whether that's uh, you know the, it's just not practical for it. people can't come and watch you every week but yet you need to be giving them something every week for them to be i, I don't know i don't in, even invested yeah in invested in it and i suppose like a, a sort of active consumer of your of your uh, product uh, uh, there's a chap called kevin kelly a tech guy and he refers to it as the thousand true fans so Assuming that those thousand true fans, you could foreseeably sell something that was worth a hundred pounds to them per year, right. or, or less than that. You know that you've got a sustainable <clears throat> business model there, just delivering to those thousand people that love what you create and do. Yeah. Um, so effectively, you're trying to kind of convert those people to, oh, great, you like my stuff. Well, uh, you know, follow me more. And uh, exactly, exactly. And it, yeah, and it's Stuart Lee. Um, comedian um he he uh he said something very i think when he sort of started rebuilding himself at the start of the uh of the last decade he, he sort of said if i if i have five thousand people around the uk who are happy to spend 10 pounds a year to come and see me once that's a career and it yeah and it and like you say about the sort of the the podcast and the, you know with the americans and, it, and the, don't, don't get me wrong the british stand-ups are doing it as well you know, do, do, what do you make to give people every week? Do you make sketches? Do you, do you have a funny Twitter account that people can follow and, you know, engage with? And, you know, don't get me wrong, say all, all these kind of uh, terms like engage and active consumer, all these, it, you know, it does make me feel a bit sick, to be honest. But, it, <laughs> but it, you know, it's, 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 it's part it's, of the game. It's part of the game, and it's, especially nowadays. But, yeah, I, th- I think you do have to have something to give people. And that's, that's still something that, personally, I'm trying to work out. I don't, I don't know what that is for me yet. And it... It's it's something that I want to work out soon because I think especially, so. I, I did Edinburgh this year, and um, you know, after each Edinburgh show, you, you you really do feel like, especially when you have a good show, you feel like, what do I do now to to make sure that these people, you've got that moment in time, you know, that captive audience of that yeah. moment. If you don't convert them then and there, yeah, you, you're the chances of those people becoming in your that circle or whatever is 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 slim yeah so there has to be some form of mechanic where you can kind of whether it's they 
come to you or whether you capture their stuff somehow you know i think that's it and i think i think that's that's i think especially nowadays it's becoming more like it's becoming more of a two-way thing now and i think you see that a lot more with people and i i suppose this is quite a um it's quite a sort of global thing and it's something that affects anyone who you know again using these terms but anyone who sort of uh anyone who creates content is trying to find the, the best way of producing enough content that people can engage with and blah 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 but yeah i i, I think it is becoming more of a two-way thing i think people are becoming more interactive with the the content that they consume i sound like a working marketer <laughs> i don't know where i don't know where i pick up all these words well it's you know it's like you say it's part of what you've got to do but um Let's maybe shift it back to to, to your stuff. So, uh, in a in a recent interview, I heard you say that in your very first performance that your material was a little bit more ambitious because it dealt with subjects like religion and paedophilia. <laughs> and uh, I wondered what it was that made. I wasn't that... drawing. I promised that I didn't draw a link between the two. That's no. it. <laughs> That's what I, would say. Um, I was curious to know, you know, what makes that subject matter uh, more ambitious in your opinion than what you maybe do now. Um. I'm not. I'm not sure that I necessarily think it's more ambitious than what I do now. But I think. I think. I think certainly at the time, I. I didn't want to go out and talk about subjects that I thought were, you know, sort of hack and boring. You know, whether that's stuff that's sort of unnecessarily blue or you know, um, dating apps or whatever. And I don't think that I've moved on to that at all. I think. I think I've just. I, I think I've just learned how to speak about things that I care about in a language that suits me. You know, so so I I think now I, I and this could sound incredibly pretentious, but now I I, I try and talk about uh, class nationalism um, in in terms that I can speak in. So through anecdotes and through past experiences and through you know th- things that are more relevant to me. Whereas when I started. I just wanted to go out and tell people you know what's wrong with religion and you know uh, make make ironic jokes about disabled people i do have to stress there right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah because because i just i just watched a lot of ricky gervais and i'd watched a lot of russell brand and it people like that who are very good at, at talking about quite serious things and saying things that are uh potentially quite controversial but in a way that's obviously ironic so it's you know it's funny well, i've got a little list for you here because it, this is a subject which is so prevalent right now which is that there's a uh, between the left and the right the, the, there's extremities and people who are typically liberal and left mm-hmm. have, uh, um, they're, they're kind of so far leaning that they're actually squelching on free speech which would be something that they would be be more uh, more for than anyone in, in theory so you know subjects that people struggle with uh, assimilation religion gender cultural differences politics sex sexual orientation war um, but it's kind of. Do you see it as your role as a comedian to be that cultural provocateur, to be able to, um, to be able to voice those things and in in, a, in an environment that people aren't going to take seriously, or has that backfired in the past? I think well, it, yeah, it has backfired in the past. I think, I think, I think, and I think that's the reason that there is, um, there are people that are uncomfortable with it. It's because it's because in the past it has been. I mean, you know, we, we, we're talking about my first gig, and I'm sure that I did it in a very heavy-handed way, in a way that, you know, I, I don't think I upset anyone, but potentially could have done. And I think that's the that's possibly where it's gone wrong in the past is that people have done it in a way that hasn't 
been particularly sensitive and has and i think the problem nowadays is that there's things performance used to exist in isolation and within the context of that performance itself and it used to live in that that context and it used to die in that context if you've come and seen me at top secret um you know and it years ago that performance would have been in isolation of its own performance i could have said something that written down would have looked absolutely horrendous but within the context of that room you know either based on something that had happened in the room or something that someone had already said in the room it could be perfectly acceptable where everyone's in on the joke and we all had a good time whereas you could write it down take it away and it could sound awful nowadays it's it's, it's difficult because everything has the potential to be filmed everything has the potential to be written down all it takes is for someone to write a tweet saying uh, i went to see a comedian who said this and it spirals out of everything else I, I think with all those subjects, all, all you can do is just try and. I, if if it, it, for me personally, if I, if I don't feel I'm personally informed on a subject and I don't feel the subject really affects me, I don't really see why I need to speak about it. That's not to say that I'm not allowed to speak about it, but I just personally don't think. And also, I think, I, I think a lot of the time nowadays, people 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 confuse being prosecuted in terms of their speech with being told to shut up. So you know me, me me saying something horrendous on stage about whatever religion, yeah. and then a thousand people attacking me on Twitter about it. That's still not me being prosecuted. That's not the police turning up at my door. That's just other people's free speech to call me an idiot, which is fine. That that's that's still me having free speech. You know, um, I, I I I've I've personally as a comedian, I've I've never really felt that my free speech has been. Uh, taken away from me, or that, or that I, I feel like I mean, there, there are clubs that I do that I know are slightly more sensitive, and are yeah. slightly more squeamish, and that I shouldn't say certain things. I, you know, sometimes that's frustrating. Sometimes you wish you could be a bit more ballsy in what you talk about. Am I allowed to swear, by the way? Yeah, of course. All right, okay. So, um, <laughs> sorry, I, uh, I should have asked that. But, um, yeah, there, there, you know, there are, there are clubs that are a little bit more squeamish, but then there's there's some that aren't. And there, I'd like to think there is still. a a place and a context where you can talk about all the subjects that you listed there and you won't have people get upset or get offended. I'd also like to think that if you do talk about those things and people do get upset and get offended, it's it's not the end of the world. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that answers the question. No, I, no, yeah. it's good. Like on a, a, a slightly different tangent, but playing on a, another facet of stand-up comedy, and you kind of briefly mentioned it, I think, before we started recording, which is... Uh, the fact that you wanted to do it for 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 uh, since you can remember, for example, yeah, for a long time, and saying that uh, maybe people think you're you're in a you're in a worse place than you are, like psychologically or whatever, because there is yeah. there is that association <laughs> with stand up comedy that you think so much about the world around you that actually you can end up in a very depressive place, and uh, that that's a, a part of it to some degree. Um, when you're thinking about what life's all about, and then you realise, you know what, it's like there is no official meaning for a lot of people so why not just take the piss out of it and have a laugh yeah um, is that been an experience for you do you find that some people are quite neurotic in in the in the yeah biz? yeah of course of course but i mean you probably get a bit of that in every industry but of course it's it's prone to that it's and it like you say it encourages as a sort of introspection and you know encourages you to 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 really take in things around and i suppose in some in some instances that probably i i've i've personally count myself as quite lucky in that my 
my my mental health hasn't really I, I don't think maybe it has but I don't, I don't think it's been too badly blighted by what I do with stand up um but there, there's every reason why it would I mean you, you know that I mean what it's not a healthy thing to do is it to go to stand there you know bear all be quite honest in front of hundreds of people and the reaction to it to be so visceral and immediate you know that that can be a very difficult thing to deal with and I I completely empathize with anyone who does have um you know who 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 does get down and you, you would get down about it and it, and I'm not saying that I I don't get down because I don't have bad gigs of course I have bad gigs um but it's I I don't know I've, I've I'm just quite fortunate in that um I've got I've got nice people around me um I've got nice people that I work with regularly in terms of stand up and comedy that you know can sort of just give me a pat on the back and say don't worry you know next, <laughs> tomorrow tomorrow is a new gig um but yeah it, it, I I think you know there the, there are a lot of people who it it, it can really it, it's just it's a very open place to be it's a very lonely place to be as well well I was on this on that I think that when a massive part of comedy is is uh, you being able to observe stuff and almost from an outside perspective. So you're looking at the world around you and going, you know, what are these interactions that are going on here? What is what's funny about it? What 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 are some of the things that people just take for granted that mm. actually that, that there's something different and weird about it? And that naturally is going to exclude you from from being in it, I guess. Yeah, naturally, naturally, I think it does, and I think I think some sometimes I think that that's. For me personally, that that that's where I've found that I uh, that I draw a lot of material from is is situations where I do feel more like an outsider. There, there's you know when it, when I look at what I write about and when I look at what I sometimes struggle to write about, some of the stuff that I really struggle to write about is stuff where I'm just I don't feel as much of an outsider. Do you know what I mean? So times times when I do feel more in the moment and more caught up with things that that's kind of that's they're the sort of scenarios that are sometimes difficult more difficult to write about. Or more difficult to have a fresh angle on because because you are just within it and you are just enjoying it. Whereas I suppose I suppose the the situations where you do feel a bit more like an outsider, they they just naturally lend to observation. And um, yes, yeah, so they're, they're usually the most sort of fruitful topics to pick in my experience. I think you, you do get a there is definitely a spectrum of that in terms of comedians. There there are some comedians who the way they present themselves on stage is so far towards that that level of being an outsider you know um angelos epithemia um brian gittins for example they you know they 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 are outsiders to the extreme but then you get other comedians where you maybe not say that's the case you know who are more sort of everyman kind of comedians um you sort of jason manfords and your and your your mcintyres and stuff who probably mickey, mickey flanagan would he be in it uh, yeah yeah definitely flynn flan <laughs> But yeah, yeah, you know, they're, 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 I mean, they're not people that who you'd necessarily describe as outsiders. But they, I think, what they're what they're really good at is is picking out and describing the sort of uh, really minute details within social situations that are funny. Yeah, there, there was one chap at Secret Comedy Club. And obviously, I'm not going to try and tell his jokes. I would fuck it right up. <laughs> but um, he was talking about how. Basically, uh, for him, when the sun came out, it was like it was it was leading people, pulling them to the park and pinning them down to the ground. So you you lie there and you soak in the sun. And I could tell that this guy was just like such an outsider. You know, he's just proper loner. Yeah. From the jokes were all these things that we all take for granted and actually quite enjoy. And he was kind of saying, 
this stuff that you do that you love it actually it's ridiculous and i i was loving it but i could tell i, I felt kind of sorry for the dude because the room was wasn't on his side but i felt like you know like he he's funny yeah definitely and you, you do you see that i think i think that some of the really like the most interesting comedians are the ones who can have those gigs and perhaps only connect with 20 or 30 percent of the people in the room but kind of have the, the sort of strength and the balls to stick with it and to persevere. And I think especially, you know, think about it from an audience point of view with that, that's probably for you, that's probably, you probably feel, it probably feels a little bit more special to be part of that 20% of the room who really enjoyed that joke and who really got that joke. And that's probably why that comics material stuck with you a bit more than when you're in a room and you're just part of the 100% who are all on board with it. And I, I think that that's that's where a lot of the most interesting and alternative comedy comes from. It's the people who are happy to just connect with 20% of the room. And that 20% will come out and go, well, it feels like I'm part of this sort of exclusive club who are the only people who get this this woman or this man's jokes. And it it creates a more kind of intimate way of enjoying that comedy. That's going back to your, to being a marketers for a minute, yeah. that's, where, that's where you get your... Uh, <laughs> yeah, the people. I mean, I'll tell you what, when I give up on comedy, I'm going to be a great agent. Yeah, there you <laughs> go, sorted. Um, Talking about other comedians, from a from an outsider perspective, comedians have this aura of like indestructibility about them. They're so fast, and you kind of obviously there's the few brave hecklers that kind of give it some, but everyone yeah. else is is a little is a bit more intimidated because they assume they're going to get torn to shreds or whatever. <laughs> um, in my experience, the few that I've spoke to, like yourself, have all been really friendly. But what is the actual community like from uh, when once you're in it? Is there any deverishness or? or oh, of course, that, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, the, the, you know, there, there's a there's there's a very broad spectrum of, of personalities, and you know, ninety percent of people are absolutely lovely. Um, you, I, th- I think what you do find in this this oh, this might be London, but they they I mean, with London, there is a, an extensive kind of open mic circuit, and that is that is you know the sort of first rung on the ladder, and that's you know sort of. Entry level, you know, when, when you start performing, they're the sort of the open mic nights are the nights that you start at, and they are they will have sort of you know anywhere between fifteen and twenty five comedians on a bill doing sort of five minutes each. They're usually very new comedians. The audience numbers tend to be quite low, and I think that 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 circuit has got a slight level of there 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 were one or two there were one or two characters on that circuit. They're a bit bitter and a bit. I mean, I, I especially felt as a new comic who was quite, you know, like I say, quite young, not the youngest, but um, quite young. I did, you know, it, it's a bit intimidating. Um, and, there, you know, definitely when I started, there were, there were a few people that I, I, I'd feel really intimidated at gigs sometimes just by some of the personalities in the room, and it can be quite clicky. But as soon as you get out of those rooms and onto the, you know, into more positive environments, everyone's lovely. Literally everyone's lovely. And it, you know, all all the way up to really, you know, pretty big names. I mean, I I I did a gig with. Um, I was really lucky. I got I got to do a gig with Kevin Bridges, and he he's someone who I remember watching years and years ago on my on my parents' computer, watching him do his first live at the Apollo, and I, I absolutely adored it, and I I loved it, and it, you know, and I, I was I was so I was so sort of excited to to perform on the same bill as him, and he. Uh, it was in a club in uh, Kingston upon Thames called Outside the Box. It's a great little club run by a guy called Math Brown, and he's a fantastic, hilarious comedian himself. But um, so Kevin Bridges was on, and there was a few of us, and I think we were all a bit excited to be on the same bill as him. And the, I, we were in the green room. I say the green room. It's three sheets that are <laughs> hanging in the corner of the room that the comedian's standing before going on stage. 
And he came in and he, and he, he, he you know, just introduced himself to absolutely everyone. You know, he said, oh, hi, I'm Kevin, how are you? How long have you been going? Blah, 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 as if we didn't know who he was. And then afterwards, he was he was nice enough to put a nice tweet about us all, um, sent me a nice message on, on Twitter, and, and uh, he, he managed to get me a couple of gigs with his uh, with his management company. And so they, and there's, there's loads and loads of different examples of that, of really, really good people who don't need to be the nicest guy in the room, but they, they frequently are. And I think there's definitely an element of that, and that's probably in loads of industries where... The nicest people do tend to get up the ladder a little bit quicker, just because they're better to work with, and that's I think that's you know that's that's a nice reward to the nicer people. But yeah, my, my, most of the people within the industry are really really nice people, and that, that's not just performers as well. Like the uh, you know p- promoters get a bad name. I don't really know why. I think you know the, I think there's this kind of myth that that promoters just sort of take all the ticket money and don't give it to the acts. I think in reality, promoters have got one of the most thankless jobs in our industry. You know, they're they're not getting the buzz from going... I'm sure they get a buzz from running their gigs, but they're they're not getting the same kind of buzz that we get going on stage. You know, in in any kind of live entertainment industry is incredibly difficult nowadays. You know, you're competing against absolutely everything. You know, it's it's more expensive to run nights, everything like that, and they get a bad rep. But most of the promoters I can think of, I I have a great relationship with. They're incredibly helpful. I mean, you know, some of the first people... Some of the people that I first worked with in terms of promoters were so helpful to me. You know, really went out of their way to say, you know, if you ever want to go for a beer and just have a chat about stuff, you know, cool. Um, a guy called Bobby Carroll was great for that. Um, he run uh, comedy nights and they did a competition um, that I sort of got into the final of in my first year and I was a bit too new for it, really. I didn't really know what I was doing. And he sort of took me aside and, you know, he'd, he'd take me for loads of beers and loads of chats and just... And he was great. And, um, yeah, so my, most people in the industry are absolutely lovely. I think the same as everything else, you get a few nutters. And you're always gonna, and I think especially with what we do, it it, it encourages it a bit. But um, but yeah, my, most of the people are really nice. In the second section of the interview, I wanted to talk to Jacob about the craft of stand-up. There's a perception that comedians are all naturally funny, but it's my assumption that actually a lot of work goes into the writing and delivery of comedic performance. And I wanted to hear Jacob's approach and advice when it came to coming up with ideas and performing. Just to delve into some of the kind of craft elements and the, like you say on the writing side and what you what you do when you're not on stage. Um, first off, do you actually think you need to be naturally funny to be a great comedian? I think I think you know nat- naturally funny as a term itself is there's there's so many um, there's so many different ways of understanding that. Um, I put I. I most of the people I know who are some of the best comedians are not necessarily the most um, sort of out, outwardly funny people when you meet them face to face. That's not to say they're not funny, but it's just not to say that they're, they're not usually the people that make the most effort to be the funniest person in the room. Um, I think I think joke writing is definitely something you can learn, and I think definitely definitely more recently that there's there's more people who are putting more time into teaching that as a craft as well as learning it. So that you really can learn how to write a comedy now without being a you know what people would perceive as a naturally funny person. And then the flip side of that, there are people who who don't necessarily write in that way, who are who are purely improvisational on stage and are absolutely hilarious. Um, so there there really are a range of approaches, but I don't, I don't think you need to be the person. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of people who start doing comedy say, "Oh, my my friends have told me to do comedy for ages." 
there's loads of people whose friends would never even dream of them ever doing comedy who become the best comedians. And, it, you know, from, from having an analytical mind, from having a, a good eye for structure and for patterns in terms of joke writing. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think anyone could do it, really. On the subject of actually wanting to be known for something, for having a niche, you, earlier <coughs> you mentioned that you might only resonate with 20 people in the room, uh, 20% of the room, for example. Yeah. Um, do you think being uh, like myself, a British white guy that is, you know, just one of the masses in, in uh, you know, there's not an not a, a, an angle that you can go on. Like oftentimes, when you see comedians, they'll 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 go on their heritage or mm-hmm. um, you know their own personal experiences that have been a little bit more. They've been more different from the people that they're performing to. Yeah. Um, do you find that as something that could hold you back or that could uh, make it difficult to kind of make a name for yourself or to give you a differentiation above uh, around your peers? I think I think it works both ways. I, th- I think I think there. Don't you mind it? Every time I sit in front of a notepad, I wish I was more interesting. And I wish, <laughs> you know, every time I sit in front of a notepad, I wish I was more exotic and I wish I was more interesting. And I wish that my, the, the way that I find my angle on things was a bit more obvious. But then at the same time, when I look at a panel show, there, will f- there are three or four white guys in their 20s or 30s that I look and I go, oh, I could be like him. I could be like him. Whereas, Traditionally, um, for people, for women, for people of colour, um, sometimes people who are gay, if they're looking at that same panel show, they might only see one person. And they could go, oh, that, so that's that's where my voice is represented. There's only one person doing that. So I, I'm... I'm I'm all for more diversity within within comedy and more voices and I, I and I wish my voice was more diverse. I think I think what I'm getting better at as I do it longer is finding what is interesting about my voice and what what things I can talk about that are maybe a bit different to what other people have done because you know without wanting to sound too cliche, everyone's got some kind of unique angle. Um, there's everyone's got a way of thinking about something that's slightly different to the norm. Um, and I think I, you know, like I said, I'm getting better at learning what mine is, and I think I'm starting to. I think we, you know, within within comedy, my my background is is more different than usual. You know, that what I've found within comedy is that my, most people have a lot more money than me, and <laughs> you know, come from a background where they, you know, they're, they're slightly better spoken or better educated or, or you know, better off. Um, <clears throat> so that that's you know, I'm not. I'm not not by any stretch of the imagination saying so, no, I'm, I'm I'm not part of the privileged elite. I very much feel like I am, um, but I I I think you know, like I say, I'm getting I'm getting better at learning what my interests and angle on things are. When it actually comes to writing your jokes, uh, I assume that once you've written them, that you'll then mess around with structure and that kind of thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. How do you, what's that process for you? What does that look like? Um, it, so I, I usually it's it's it starts with like a, a kind of simple idea. And what what I what I usually try and do is if I if I'm just trying to make a point, if I've just got a statement that I want to get across, you know, for example, saying, "Hey, look at this thing. That's a bit ridiculous, isn't it?" I I usually try and frame it within some kind of anecdote. So, um, so for example, so I've, I've I've got a bit of material about Saint George's Day, which is basically about that it's a bit silly that it's something that's strangely lauded by nationalists and it's based on something that definitely isn't true um if i just say it like that that's not very funny 
Um, so I and it, I what what basically uh, spawned the idea for that bit of material is I was on I was on the internet and I was I was probably on like Britain First or one of those silly Facebook pages. Just because I, I just quite like to read stuff like that every now and then, even though it's something I don't agree with. It, so I just find it quite funny. Um, <laughs> and I, I saw a guy on there who, you know, someone had basically put it to him that the whole Saint George's Day thing is obviously not true. Most of you aren't even religious, and yet you celebrate it like a cup final. Um, and you know, there was no dragon, there was no George, blah blah blah. And this this guy was arguing back, saying there was, um, you know, and even if it wasn't a dragon, it might not have been a lizard. It might have been a lizard. Who cares? He's still a saint. But to, but to sort of tell that story like that isn't very interesting. So I frame it in a different way. Um, I, I say that my dad had a Saint George's Day party, um, and at that party, I had that interaction with someone. Um, st- within you know, and and that in itself is is maybe slightly better as a joke. You know, to say that I, you know, my dad had a St. George's Day party. I went there, I got an argument with a guy about the legitimacy of St. George's Day and he argued that maybe St. George didn't kill a dragon, maybe it was a lizard, who cares, it's still a saint. Um, But then within that, to make it funnier, I put a level of jeopardy. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. In there by saying my dad threw that St George's Day party after forgetting my birthday, so then I've got an angle on that. I've I've got an emotion to carry throughout that. So just for people that are listening, you've just said anecdotes, jeopardy. Like, what are some of the things? Uh, I'm guessing that kind of rug pulls or like switches. Or yeah, whatever. so like, like pull back and reveal kind of jokes, stuff like Do that. You, can you like reel them off off the top of your head at all? Like, those, yeah, yeah, those I, different I, I, techniques. I, yeah, I can give examples. So I mean, I've I've got a bit of material that's probably quite a. Uh, Again, probably quite a, a formulaic pullback and reveal joke. So a pullback and reveal joke is kind of where you lead the audience down uh, one path and then you pull back and reveal that they were actually on a different path all along. So the joke that I do, I, I talk about how I look quite young. I tell an anecdote of how I was doing a gig. I went to the gig. I asked the barman for a drink. The barman wouldn't serve me because he thought I was under 18. I had an argument with the barman because behind the bar there was a poster for the night I'm doing with my face on it. I, I point that out. I say, oh, I'm one of the comedians, so I'm obviously over 18. He looks at me and says, hmm, good try. Right? 
and then I go into this sort of, I go into this sort of rant about how you know what what does this guy think I'm doing? I'm either I'm either pretending to be a comedian just to get a drink from a bar, or I actually am a 17 year old boy who's gone all the way to a comedy club, pretended to be a comedian, risk getting on stage just to pay four pound fifty for an overpriced drink. Yeah, and then at the end of the joke, I say. Anyway, he fell for it. I had my first beer, and it was the best seventeenth birthday ever. Yeah. So it's a pullback and reveal, revealing that I actually was seventeen all along, stuff like that. So that, that that's that's kind of one sort of formula you can go down for jokes and stuff like that. So when let's say you've formulated this new joke and uh, you know you think it's awesome, mm-hmm. one thing that I've done because I mean like I've I've messed around with trying to write jokes and stuff, and then in your head it sounds brilliant, and then when you actually try and say it, your delivery completely changes the way the way it comes out so how mm. how do you how do you vet material once you've once you've written it <clears throat> well i there, there's kind of two ways that i do it now is it i either take it to a sort of new material gig um you know which, which is uh typically a gig that's either at a slightly smaller club or it's it's a, a club where they've said to the audience this is new material so they're kind of not expecting you to do your absolute gold and test it in front of an audience or the the, the other thing i do now which i'm doing more so is writing with other comedians and kind of road testing material with other comedians, and that, that's something that I, I took way too long to start doing. Um, I really, you know, be, I think just because stand up's quite a sort of individualistic pursuit, I didn't really think you could be collaborative with it. And then one day, one comedian said, "Oh, do you want to get together and sort of do some writing?" And I was like, oh, "Yeah, maybe." And you know, you, you're just so precious about your own ideas that. It, you know, in front of an audience, it's quite an impersonal way to test an idea. You know, if if fifty people don't like your joke, it's not much fun, but it's not a very personal way of of people disliking it. Whereas if I'm just sat in front of you right now, Ricky, and I, I try one of my jokes on you, I'm looking for at every muscle of your face <laughs> for approval. Do you know what I mean? And it, so so it's quite a daunting thing to start doing. Um, but it, it's it's so helpful, and it and, and it and it just it just speeds up that process so much. So if I, if I write a joke now, and I want to test it out, I've got to wait till the next new material gig. I've got to do the gig. After the gig, I've then got to listen back to the recording on my phone and try and really decipher how people laughed at it. Whether there is, as we spoke about earlier, a twenty percent of the room who did enjoy the joke. Maybe everyone hates it. Maybe there's twenty percent of the room that did enjoy it. So it's worth sticking with it. Maybe tweaking it. Whereas if I'm just with another comedian who I, whose opinion I trust and who's you know really good at writing themselves, I can just say the joke, and that, that whole you know that week long process is shortened down to thirty seconds. When you say the joke in that interaction, do you perform the joke or do you say the joke? <laughs> this is uh, this is I know. This is something I've got better at because even that—that's quite a cringeworthy thing to do, isn't it? When you're in it, you know, when you're in a pub, especially. This is the worst because you, most of the time I do it in pubs with people, and so that—that's even more embarrassing. If, if you're just in a quiet, if if we're in my living room or something, it's not quite. But if we're in a pub, I've got to sit here perform. But yeah, I mean, it's it's more worthwhile to deliver it as you're going to deliver it on stage. And you know, the first sort of few times I did do this, I was I was quite shy and a bit embarrassed. Yeah. So I was I just sort of mumbled through the joke. I went, "No, it's not very good, is it? Shit, I'll just cross it out." Whereas now I've I've got better at actually performing it a bit like I would do on stage and and delivering it and putting the sort of pauses and the intonation. And if there is any physicality, you know, doing doing 
the bare minimum of that so it's not too embarrassing in the pub but yeah i think you you've skipped over something which is super important in that which is pauses and how yeah silence can kind of play a role in massively massively and i'll tell you what you 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 don't you never notice that more than at a gig when you haven't got silence so i mean there's this is a big problem we're not a big problem but this, this is an issue that a lot of people have at the edinburgh fringe um Nowadays, a big so if if people don't know what the Edinburgh Fringe is, it's a, 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 a originally a theatre festival in Edinburgh that is now the fringe aspect of it is mainly taken over by comedy. Loads of comedians go up there and do shows. You know, there's thousands and thousands of shows. Um, and a big aspect of Edinburgh nowadays is the Free Fringe, which is where organisations, there's a few of them. Um, they go around to sort of pubs and stuff and they say to pubs, hey, if you've got, you know, a back room or something where we could maybe set up a microphone and stuff like that, we could run a programme of comedy throughout the whole fringe and, you know, you don't pay anything, we don't pay anything. Um, as a comedian, you pay about 90 quid to be in that room and, you know, it's not a theatre, but it's a decent enough room, you know, and a lot of time it works. For, for me personally, that worked great. I was in the back room of a pub. Um, I had a microphone, I had lights, I had proper seating. I, I didn't pay anything, the pub didn't pay anything. Um, you know, the 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 way it worked is that I had a space to perform. I was dragging in, you know, 50 or so punters every day for them. Everyone's happy. In some situations at the Fringe, you get rooms that aren't quite as good. Um, and the, the biggest problem you sometimes find is noise bleed. And that's when you really find as a comedian, when, when you're trying to do something where you just need to build a bit of tension or you just need a bit of quiet, if you've got anything whether it's a fan on the walls cool people down. I mean, this is the problem about the fringe being in August. Even in Scotland, it gets too hot, so you've got to have fans and air conditioning. If you've got music playing next door, anything like that, it's a nightmare. And, and it, it, it's, it's not even just having pauses that are clear, but the, the timing of those pauses and everything like that, that's something that you learn as you're doing it. And it's, it's quite funny, because like, obviously I spent the whole of August in Edinburgh. And then, so, I mean, we're, we're now in the later later days of September and I spent two weeks at the start of September on holiday, came back, had food poisoning and it was only last week that I started performing again. And while I was in Edinburgh, I got really, you know, just because I was doing stand-up every day and also not, not just doing stand-up every day because I do stand-up every day pretty much now, but I wasn't thinking about anything else. So I'd, I'd do my show, which was 40, 45 minutes. I'd then, you know, work on it, rewrite it, do other spots elsewhere, spend all day thinking about my material and so... I just got sharp with it and I just got really I knew where the pauses were. I knew how long to pause for. I knew I knew wh- you know all the intonation on all the words everything like that. And then I went on holiday for 2 weeks then spent a week off with food poisoning and now I've come back and the first gig that I did back last Thursday at Top Secret where we where we met I I was I was there last week and I I'd forgotten where to pause within sentences to the point where I was running out of breath. I couldn't say, you know, I was ruining jokes. I couldn't say the last few words at the end of the sentence just because I'd forgotten where to pause within these jokes. It had completely gone out of my head. I think it's really nice for people to hear, you know, because it is that that much of a refined art once you... The material and then it's the practice and practice Mm. and practice and practice. Um, I assume that there's a a huge difference between a short joke and a long joke on, on the basis that a long joke requires a lot more investment from the audience perspective. So... If that if that flops, it's a a bit more of a like knife to the heart in terms of you haven't got much t- or you drag them through a long experience to then for it to not to pay off. Whereas with a short joke, if it doesn't land, you're on to your next or whatever. Yeah, I, I I think I think a good way of writing the longer jokes is to have punchlines in there 
as if you were just telling a series of short jokes. And that's that's certainly how I try to do it. I think coming back to Edinburgh again, but in at the Edinburgh Fringe, that there's there there seem to be audiences that are a lot more patient, so you can go you know, a little bit longer without punchlines and they'll they'll patiently listen waiting for the joke to come. And as you say, in that situation, if you you know, especially especially if you intend there to be jokes, um you do you know, if if it does go wrong it, it it's a long way to wait to the next punchline sometimes. Um but I th- I, th- I think the what you what you're usually trying to do, whether it's telling whether I was to tell a series of one liners or whether I was to do stories and anecdotes as I usually do you still want to get a laugh every you know whatever it is six or seven seconds or whatever that's just, that's incredible isn't it over the course of a 45 minute gig yeah I mean and don't get me wrong I'm not saying that I nailed yeah. that every day but there, you know there, there, there were some tough shows there were some seriously tough shows that I had out there but um yeah I think I think you know even within those longer jokes you want to get the punchlines in you want to get the punchlines in and you do you kind of build up a level of trust with the audience where towards the end of a longer joke, you can go a bit longer without getting the laugh because they trust you because they've learnt the rhythm of how you're speaking and they're, they're willing to stick with it for a bit longer because they're, you know, they're invested and there's going to be a payoff. Um, but yeah, you, I, th- I think, re- you know, regardless of length of joke, you want it to be punchy or at least I do anyway. That's, that's, that's the way I do it. I've, I've always tried to just keep it, keep it punchy. So, Part of being a comedian is obviously having to, uh, in order to to become successful, everyone bombs, I assume, and also you have to deal with hecklers. Um, I yeah. wondered if you could share a few of your kind of more more terrible experiences, either where someone's kind of called you out and it's been it's been a hard heckle or whatever, or or that experience of bombing hard, you know? Yeah, I I, I bombed. I remember I bombed hard once. There's um. It was in Covent Garden. It was underneath an Italian restaurant, and it was the, it's been there a while. On it, I did this gig, and it, it was a while ago now. It was a really long time ago. It was, what was it? Probably about eighteen months ago. And I did it, and it, the the sort of agreement that I had with the promoter was quite strange. It was like it wanted me to do like seven seven to eight minutes, and in return he would give me five pounds and a pizza. But I had to, yeah, buy me a pizza from the restaurant upstairs. That was it. But he, the way he'd sort of structured the show is he had three of us comedians and one would go on, then another one, then I'd go on, then there'd be a break, then I would go on again and then the other two would go on and then we'd get our pizza and our five pounds. And I remember I just I just bombed so hard with my first set, really, really badly. It just like to silence, absolute silence, just... You know, like it's quite a small room. It was like thirty people were just staring at me, like, "What? Why is he talking? Why is he talking about this?" And I remember, I sort of came off stage, and I just, <laughs> just had to say to the guys, "I'm, I'm really sorry. I don't want a pizza enough to stick around for another set." <laughs> and I just went home. Um, but this, and, and what do you think that was? Just a wrong crowd? I don't know. You, you kind of get taught, and I don't know who teaches us this, but you kind of get taught to think that there's no such thing as a wrong crowd, and that there's always something you can do to make it work. And I, de- I definitely like to think that. I mean, some of the some of the really best gigs I've done have been with crowds that I've at first gone, oh, maybe they're not going to like this, you know. And I th- that's definitely when you feel a bigger level of accomplishment is when you 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 feel like you've you've overcome an audience that perhaps wouldn't have naturally taken to you. Um, but I don't know what was wrong that night. I, maybe I was a bit. I I tell you what, for for a long, not a long time, but if there was a few times when I would, I'd have really big nights out, and then have gigs the next day, and in my head I thought they were going great. 
right? I, I like, I, you know, like I wouldn't sleep. I'd stay up all night. I'd, you know, I'd be in a right state. I'd have a quick shower, and a lot of the time, my mates would come with me, and I'd go and do the gig. And I'd be like, oh my god, I, I, you know, maybe I'm even better when I'm in this state. <laughs> and then uh, a couple of times, the, the people that would come and watch me at those gigs would then come and watch me at a gig where I wasn't in that state, and they'd go, oh my god, you, you are so much better when you've been to bed and I realised that was probably a delusion and those gigs probably weren't going as well as I thought they were but there's there's been a few dodgy ones there's, there, I remember there was one that I did and this was quite early on as well and it was in a social club in Romford and it was uh, you know wall to wall St George's flags on the wall um, I wasn't doing that material back then, but it was Walter. You know, it was a very kind of, it was that kind of vibe. Do you know what I mean? I hadn't been football on for months, but it was that kind of vibe. And uh, I remember it was just, it was just savage. And it was someone's birthday. It was, it was for someone's birthday party. And we we got in there. I went, I went into this social party. You know, it, it looked a bit sort of rough and rowdy and stuff. And it was, and it seemed to mainly be drug dealers or people who at least looked like drug dealers and their girlfriends. And it was about seven o'clock, and everyone was dancing. And there was a girl singing, and it turned out this girl was sort of like a local hero. She'd got through to the judges' houses on the X Factor a couple <laughs> of years ago, and like every Friday night she'd sing, and every Friday night everyone would dance to her singing. And so she she was, you know, giving it Adele and whatever, you know, and everyone was loving it and dancing, and everything like that. And the landlord of this pub, it, you know, it, it probably wasn't as dramatic as this, but in my head, he ripped the microphone away from her, made her sit down, and said, right, everyone stop dancing, stop having fun, we've got three comedians now, and you're going to sit and you're going to enjoy it. And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, this isn't going to go well. And uh, I was quite new, and I, I didn't really remember a lot of my jokes, and I had some of them written on my hand and stuff. I remember sitting there, you know, and there was these, all these guys in tracksuits. They had dogs and stuff, you know, and they, with the girlfriends. There, it was quite surly and scary, and I thought this can't get any worse. And I noticed that the front two rows were empty. And now looking at the crowd, because they're a bit sort of rough and ready, I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll do some blue material, maybe I'll do some stuff about drugs or sex or whatever, and that'll get everyone on the side. But I just thought, why are these front two rows empty? And then someone went outside and went, "Kids, come in!" And suddenly everyone's kids. So not only have I got the toughest crowd I could even I could ever think of, but then their children come as well. So that get rid of everything I've written on my hand. That doesn't work now either. I didn't actually have time to wash the stuff off my hand, and I was on stage, and you know the, the heckles were just coming thick and fast. You could barely get a word out about someone, you know, swearing at you, just putting you down. I remember one of them. Someone someone spotted that I had stuff written on my hand, and they you know sort of shouted out, "What's that written on your hand?" I, and I just I didn't have anything, so I just said, "Oh, it's just my set." And they went, oh, lucky you didn't write that on your dick. That would have been a short set, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely. Like, got a round of applause. It's brilliant. Yeah. But I, yeah, I remember after that one, I remember literally feeling like I should run to the train station. Could you I, look back on it and laugh? Yeah, well, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Now, you know, now, now I look back. And it, now I've actually, I've done rooms like that now. And I've had a great time. And, it, you know, you, you just, you just, and I, I think rooms like that now are the ones that I enjoy a lot more. You know, you, you get, you get crowds that are a bit, bit more weekendy, a bit more, you know, rough and ready in it, and I, that, that's the ones I really enjoy. The, the best ones, you know, especially when I'm doing that St George's Day material and stuff about nationalism, the best gigs I have are in front of bald guys covered in tattoos. Who I remember, I did one, and uh, there was a huge guy sat sort of second row, you know, bald head, arms covered in tattoos. And he had this great big gold sovereign ring on his finger with St. George on it. <laughs> and I sort of referenced him a few times in the material. And he was, he, was, he was sort of enjoying it. And by, by the end of it, he was on stage and I kissed the ring of St. Yeah, George brilliant. on his finger. 
But yeah, they, I, I usually I find them more fun than the than the more sort of chin scratchy kind of uh, sort of quiet crowds. But back then I wasn't really. In the final segment of the interview, I wanted to ask Jacob for his advice for those starting out. I wanted to discover what is the best way, in his opinion, to get the ball rolling and to avoid some of the pitfalls that many fall into. What I'd like to talk to you about a little bit is for people that are kind of looking to transition into it. Obviously, now that you've you've been in the in the scene for a little while, you'll have have a few insights for people. So, uh, if someone you knew wanted to start out today. Uh, what would you tell them to learn their craft like, and also how would you tell them to dip their toe in it, in in the scene? I think I think one one thing that that I did straight away that worked for me and helped me is rather than going straight into my first gig, having only watched stand up comedy on television, or you know I'd, I'd been to see Ricky Gervais at, at the O2 and stuff like that. Rather than having only seen that and then going into my first gig, which would have been a very small gig in a pub. I went and watched a lot of uh, open mic or sort of entry-level comedy nights and just learning that context, because that is completely different than Live at the Apollo or anything like that, learning what those rooms are like and what those people are like and what how that kind of works, that that just forearms you. And, it, and it's, it, even in terms of your writing, you write stuff that works in those rooms and you learn that... Just being able to reference something in the room and just just being able to be quite quite interactive with the audience makes it much better, right? And it, and it, and interactive in a way that's different to the way that someone might do on Live at the Apollo or someone might do on a tour. So I think you know get 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 a taste of what you're actually going to be doing. Go go and just just see as much as you can because because I've you know I've been doing this for three or four years now and it, and even now I see people who do it in a way that I've never seen before. There are so many. It's such a an open ended an open ended performance type, you know, art form if you if you want to call it that. It there's so many ways of doing it, and and I think the the best thing to do is to be as broad as possible in your research, because you never know what kind of comic you're going to be until you start doing it. Um, and then I think just just experiment with as many different things as possible. I think what 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 I've kind of what I found now is that I I do. You know, I, I, I'm very, I'm very much still, you know, just starting to get off the absolute bottom ring of the ladder. But now I'm doing more gigs where I have to impress. You know, I, I, I'm doing a spot, maybe doing a small spot at a club where I'm trying to get a bigger spot, or I'm fortunate enough that I'm doing spots that are paid, and you know, and doing festivals and stuff like that, and stuff where I've got people coming to watch me. And in those situations, I can't mess around. I have to do the best stuff I've got. And I can't try anything too weird or too different. Whereas when you're starting out, try everything. You know, any idea you've got, do it. Because uh, and when you first start out, how long are you expected to perform for? Probably about five minutes originally. But but then you you, you always get these sort of strange, you know, mad gigs that are just coming out of nowhere where they suddenly want you to do an hour. And just do even it. even as a yeah you do well I think because because you you you're at that level and you're kind of looking for gigs where maybe you know not to say you're not supposed to look for them but you know at that level you kind of think well I can't get into the clubs because you know they're they're oversaturated there's waiting lists you know and it's hard when you start out so you think you can't get into the clubs so you think well I'll just do so. you know like what you did with the comedy society you kind of find other places to do performances you know. You say, oh, I tell you what, you know, it's my it's my cousin's birthday in a few weeks. 
she's you know she's got DJs on whatever maybe I'll do 20 minutes there you, you just you just end up doing these weird things I mean I'm not saying that I did that um but the, you, you hear about people doing these things when they're quite new and it's good and I think that I think that's that's really to be encouraged um I think you know what and, and like I said earlier one thing that I took way too long to do is start writing with other comedians and now that that's that's made you know in, the, in probably like the year or 18 months I've been doing that that's made me so much better and that's probably something that that spans across every kind of you know creative industry or art form collaborative practice is always going to improve you but I took way too long to do it and it, you know don't be too pressured with your ideas that you don't want to share them with other people because it, it really really helps and what are some of the things that you see new people messing up I guess um I think there's a lot to be said for learning very basic stagecraft and mic technique. That you know, and it it's it's such a it's such a silly place to slip up, you know, and such an unnecessary place to slip up when you you know just just spend a little bit of time learning how to speak into a microphone, how to stand in the light on the stage, you know, just being aware of of sight lines and stuff like that because that that's such an unnecessary way. Let's, for let's teach people now. Give us the give us the two minute condensed version. Um. Well, I mean, you know, like like stay in the light, as simple as, simple as that. I mean, but it, it, it's, but it's what's a, what's a, uh, what's mic? Uh... My, 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 I mean, you know, with, with some mics, it's slightly different. Most of the time, you want to get it about you know an inch to three inches away from your mouth. Um, don't hold the top of the microphone; hold it at the bottom. Um, a lot of the a lot of the microphones that I end up using it have got a slightly dodgy connection in the bottom, so I. I mean, I know one comedian who sort of wraps the cable around his hand a couple of times just so there's no tension on the bottom of the cable to stop that falling out. I just hold the bottom to stop the to stop it stop that connection breaking. Um, but the, the the basic thing is just get to a venue a little bit early. Ask the organizer or the MC if you can have a quick go on the mic just to just to find out how it does work. Do a little sound check for yourself when you get there. I mean, you know, turning up early and just being nice to people that is that probably that probably cut off a year of of how 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 long you have to do it before you get anywhere because it just makes you someone that people want to work with and i think that that's you know don't be too surly don't you know help out everyone's in it for the same reason everyone wants it to be a good night and just yeah it's great insight um do you have any games or techniques that you use for practicing kind of improvisation and that kind of stuff not as not as such. I mean, I, I have so there, there's a guy that I write with. He's, he's a comedian called Alex Farrow. Um, he's based in Oxford. and he's, he's brilliant. He's a really really funny comedian. He runs some really good nights in Oxford as well. And we write together a lot. And he he has a sort of game that he does with me that he, he when I when I've got a new bit of material, and it's basically I, I will because I I don't know whether it's just the way that I write or the way that I perform, but with a lot of the material that I do, I'm. There's quite. There's usually a sort of point behind it, or there's something that I'm trying to, not necessarily convince the audience, but there's an opinion that I'm trying to convey, an angle that I'm trying to get at. And he, you know, as I'm sort of telling him the the material, he'll sort of, he won't necessarily just say why, but he'll push me to convince him. So he'll 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 push me to come up with more reasons why I think this thing, more examples of this thing happening or this thing, you know, occurring in practice. And that that's that's one thing that we've done a few times that's really helped push another bit of material. Um, and it, you know, for, forum theatre is is kind of like the sort of basic way that we perform our material to each other. So in terms of we just, you know, we sort of start performing and he'll sort of pause. Right, I'm not sure if that's working. Blah blah blah. Um, and that 
you know, try this, all right, rewind, start again, that that kind of basic way of doing it. But yeah, that that thing that he does with me is quite helpful. Where if if he feels that I'm trying to convey a message or a point or opinion, he'll push me to. He'll be like, "Why? Why do you feel like that? Why do you feel like that? Give me another example. Try harder. Push me more. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced. And keep pushing like that. And that that's helped a few times to get to get some quite good material out. When you're actually on stage, how much do you find yourself actually pulling on in, in, any kind of improvisation or? Are you mainly running off off script in your no, head? No, I do quite a lot. I I, I uh, I'm I'm quite sort of in the room when I when I perform. I I, uh, I you you might notice it when you saw me, but I, I I can't help but touch on things that are going on in the room. I I, I don't know whether it's you know slight ADHD or something that I, struggle, <laughs> I did struggle at school and stuff like that. But yeah, I just can't. I just I just find from from my point of view personally, if if especially if I'm an audience member, if I'm watching someone. And something's happened in the room. If the performer on stage doesn't acknowledge it, I suddenly I just can't I can't move on from it. I'm thinking, why why hasn't he? She, you know, she's noticed what's just happened in the room. Why hasn't she brought it up? Why hasn't he said something about it? And I think you know it builds a confidence with the audience and a trust with the audience. If if you can if you can spring off something and go, oh look at that, ha ha ha, make a thing about it. Suddenly you, you know you get you go through the roof. I mean the the, the best usually the best laughs you get are just from little things you picked up on in the room and little, you know, quick quips that you can make about it. And that yeah, I watched an Australian guy, he wore a hat and he was bold underneath it. Like, his opening thing was that he kind of looked like Hitler. And uh, But he just ripped into the audience for 20-odd minutes and it and had everyone in absolute stitches. And there was, like, you know, a few bits of his actual content and material in there, but the vast majority of his gig was... Improvisation, and you do. There is a, a massive respect for that, and I think, like you say, you get rewarded with with better laughs as a result. In a way, yeah. Um, finally, before I move on to some of the final questions, uh, how does the financial side of all this stuff happen? So, for people that are thinking about getting into it, what what can they expect when they're starting out? They can expect not a lot <laughs> in terms of in terms of uh, financial reward. They can expect to have to be quite creative. In five so, pound with their five pound. Yeah, pizza. yeah, you got to make that pizza last. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you stick around for it. No, it, it, the the fees are low. They're hard to come by. Um, the the best piece of advice is what well that I've been given is to keep your overheads as low as possible. They, I think that's probably the same as with any creative industry. But just keep your overheads low, and then there's less risk. Um, and yeah just just be creative in in ways of making money make it happen for yourself what's the tipping point for people is it when they have got uh, an audience that likes them enough that they'll come to their own gigs or is it or I, is I, it when you end up on tv like what, what well I, th- I think those two things goes those two things go hand in hand i think i think i mean i i, I was only on i was from doing the bbc new comedy award over the summer i was only on i was on the radio a few times and i was on bbc iplayer but as a result of that, I had a few, yeah, maybe a few hundred people that got in contact and said, oh, you know, we like this, we're keen to come and watch something. So from that, I can try and, you know, if, I, if I've got tickets to sell, that, that's a starting point. So I think whilst being on television, you know, obviously pays you a fee itself, there's also the exposure it gives you and it, it opens the doors to another audience. Um, and I think there's definitely something to be said for building your own live audience. You know, I think the traditional way of doing it would have been to work your way up with all the clubs, you know, whether that's the Comedy Store, places like Top Secret, 
um, you know, the glees, the jonglers, highlight clubs that are all around the country. The traditional way to do it would have been to do sort of tryout spots at those clubs where you don't get paid anything. They go well, you do a few of them, then you get onto the paid bills. Nowadays, there's too many of us. Um, there aren't enough clubs. And that, you know, for, for, for a few people, that's still the way they make their money. But I think now there's... There's other ways of doing it. And there's other forms of media on top of television as well. I've, I've been lucky enough recently that I've been doing a bit of stuff with Unilad. And just doing stuff with them opened my eyes to the fact... I mean, I, you know, they're, they're a Facebook page and they've got offices that would, you know... It's unbelievable <laughs> the amount of revenue. And, the, and I'm, not, I'm not... You know, they're, they're, they're also really awesome people to work with. You, I can only speak for Unilad, but I'm, sh- I'm sure a lot of these other sort of... Um, I don't know what Facebook pages or whatever. I'm sure they're all great to work with, but Unilad specifically, the guys who work there, they used to um, they used to run Don't Flop, which was a sort of battle rapping platform. Yeah, uh, on up, like, up, up north, isn't it? Don't Flop. It, it, it was London as well, but it right. was, yeah, and but they, you know, they, they they used to run that, and now they run Unilad, and so the, the, the project, some of the projects they're working on are incredible. I mean, the the one, the most recent one that I was a part of. They, uh, it was during the Edinburgh Fringe, they flew me and a few other comedians out to Barcelona to partake in a poker tournament. Um, it's Poker Stars, who, Poker Stars are like a poker organisation. This is one of the biggest tournaments in the world. There's a poker player called Daniel Negrano. Yeah. Do you, do you, do yeah, you know? Yeah. So he's like the Cristiano he, Ronaldo he's, he's of poker. The, he's the uh, Mystic Meg. Exactly, right? He's got his own Netflix documentary and yeah. everything like that. So <laughs> him him and three others were partnered with us. So I was playing poker against this guy. And it's just amazing. And you know, I think what we made was actually quite fun and quite funny. You know, there are loads of people who watched in it. And, you know, it was we played poker for about two hours. I, I had another poker player um, coaching me, a guy called Jamie, and then there was three other comedians. Um, I should have won. I didn't win, but I should have won. But yeah, it's, and it was great, and it, you know, that, that, and again, that, that that's another avenue you can explore. And it, there's, you know, I think pre, you know, previously it was, you know, there was the clubs, there was TV. Now there's a there's a million different ways you can do it. And it, comedian used to mean someone who stood on a stage behind a microphone and told jokes. Now it's so much broader than that, and there's so many different things you can do with it. And some of the most successful people I know are people who've who've done it themselves. I mean, I I knew. Um, I didn't know, but I, I was aware of Daniel O'Reilly, aka Dapperlaughs. Right. Um, <laughs> that goes over my head. Sorry. Oh, do you not know who Dapperlaughs is? No, no. Do you not know, no, I... remember this from a few years ago? So he he he, he was a Vine star, and, right. he, and he in the end it kind of he, he kind of self self imploded because he, he sort of uh, accusations of sexism and it you know all the all the videos he made. Got a bit nasty in the end, but he he was he ended up on Newsnight, right? Um, <laughs> that, that's that's how bad the meltdown was. But he he started off as just a, a comedian, you know, on the sort of open mic circuit, doing stuff like this. One day he got on Vine, picked up his phone, filmed himself doing something. It snowballed from there, and he's probably a millionaire now. And it, it's just from trying something a bit different. And don't get me wrong, I'm not condoning anything he did. A lot of those videos yeah. were absolutely awful. There was yeah, jokes yeah. about hitting women and all sorts of horrible stuff, but. He had an open mindset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you, you can you can uh, you can appreciate the entrepreneurship, if not the content. I've got some quick fire questions for you before I ask you my final question. Um, so yeah, just uh, I'll fire fire them at you. Favorite film or documentary? Sexy Beast, the film. <laughs> great, great one. Uh, book or learning resource? Oh, uh, learning resource. Um, I don't know about learning resource. I like I, it's a waste of a lot of time on Wikipedia. 
Uh, my favourite book is The Wasp Factory. Nice. Uh, what is The Wasp Factory, actually, just for, oh, um, to give people I context? Remember, I can't remember the fucking what it's called now. It's a Scottish guy. Um, is it a novel? Or? Yeah, a novel. Yeah, yeah. All right, novel, wicked. Yeah. Um, newsletter people should subscribe to? Oh, uh, there's a, well, he's a comedian. He's also a sort of spoken word artist and a bit of a poet. He's called Rob Orton. Um, he, his shows are absolutely fantastic. He focuses on like one subject and just makes a, a, a really inventive, cool show about them. Um, so see him live. He does great spoken words as well. He's got some really nice stuff online. But his newsletter is ab- even if you have no interest in him as a comedian or yeah. as a performer, his newsletter itself is something to behold. It's fantastic. So check out Rob Orton. He's great. There you go. Um, if you could name drop some of the best comedy clubs in London for people to check out. Um, as, as we've already mentioned, Top Secret Comedy Club is brilliant. It's, it's um, yeah, it's it's really it's growing so fast. I mean, it's literally growing. It's getting bigger all the time. But yeah, it's great, and it's got some fantastic, like insanely good comedians drop by there. I think Amy Schumer was there a few weeks ago, which oh, wow. is just unbelievable. Yeah, um, my my absolute sort of favourite and my little home is uh, Angel Comedy in uh, in Angel. Um, they've got two venues. One is the Camden Head on Camden Passage in Angel. The other one is the Bill Murray, which is a venue that they open themselves. Um, they they were like sort of open mic night. Uh, they they don't charge any ticket price. They just take donations in a bucket at the end. They save that up. They've actually bought a lease on a pub. They've named it the Bill Murray, and it's fantastic. I'd really recommend anyone to check it out there. Um, other places outside of comedy clubs that you hang out at? Uh, pubs. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not much fun outside of comedy clubs. What, what else do I do? Where do I go? Um, yes, yeah, pubs, nightclubs. I guess I go to a few clubs in London and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, no, nowhere in particular. No, no, nowhere of note. No, I, I don't have a lot. It's, I don't have enough time. That's that's the main problem. That's the, that's the only bad side of what I do is that it does eat your social life a little bit. I, every every now and then I go and watch Dulwich Hamlet um, football team in South London. Every yeah. now and then, but not not as often as I like to. Who are some of the other uh, great young comedians that people should look out for, in your opinion? Ooh, um, Kelly Convey, she's brilliant. Um, Heidi Regan, Offaly Hockard. Uh, yeah, the, he's he's not as new as I am, but he, he's he's really, really, really good. A guy called Jordan Brooks. He he's he had one of the best shows in Edinburgh. It's fantastic. Um, Arya Shah, who I mentioned earlier, is absolutely brilliant as well. Um, but yeah. Um, the, fir- the first three that I mentioned, Kelly Convey, Heidi Regan and Offaly Hockard, they're all absolutely brilliant. They're really good and you should check them out. Uh, what's a great present for you? I get, do you, know, do you know, the one I get the most is notepads. I always get notepads. <laughs> Literally every every birthday, every like anything like that, people go, oh, I've got you a notepad to write down your comedy. And if anything, it's quite depressing because it just, it just makes me think more about how I don't write enough. But... Um, a really, a really good present for me is. I, I, do you know what I say? I say about no pens. I could do with a nice pen. I haven't got a nice pen. I'd love a nice pen. There you go. For anyone listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll ask you the final, final, final question, uh, and it's a little bit of a deep one. So if you had the opportunity to give the world one piece of advice to live a better and more meaningful life, what would it be? I'd say it's really, it really is a question. I don't feel I don't I don't feel I have the authority to answer. Um, I, I make everyone do it, so this is the um, uh, the one that we'll have scribed. Well, I, I, I don't know whether it's you know the most important thing in the world or, or whether it's um, but it's just, it's just something that I started doing over the last year or so or last few years that's kind of made me 
in a bit of a better place productively and in terms of happiness is the way that I value time over other things. So the way that I value time over over money or or, or just, just the way that I think about my time and what I'm doing and how, how I can get the most out of my time but also just give myself a little bit of leeway sometimes because I, 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 can, I can be a bit hard on myself sometimes and I can... I, 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 had, a, I had a thing, um, it was a while ago, I ended, it was, I ended up basically going to the doctors and this, this might sound really weird, just, just I, I forgot how to relax and that, that might sound really weird but I forgot how to relax and I went to the doctors and it, I was really worried about it actually um, just because I, I, I couldn't watch TV anymore, I couldn't watch TV, I couldn't sit and do nothing I couldn't because I just constantly had this guilt in the back of my head that I was wasting time. And I constantly, you know, I, I literally just couldn't give myself a break. I was constantly... And I, I, ironically, I spent more time beating myself up about not hard, working hard enough than actually doing any work. And it made me much less productive. I couldn't really see it at the time. But I, I spent more time fretting and panicking and getting annoyed at myself for not working hard enough. And I've, I've learned now just to, just to give myself a few hours here and there, just, just to have a little, you know, fucking mosey and a little break... And yeah, just just I've, that it's you know it's 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 not going to save the world. I don't think there's any saving the world where we are now. But but that that's one thing that's just helped me is just being a bit more mindful in terms of how I spend my time and how I use my time and being being you know smarter with it. I actually think that's one of the more meaningful answers to uh, to that question. Oh, and, God. And, what, what does everyone else say? Well, it's just more a little bit more short and sharp, you know. Whereas. I like the fact that you've uh, backed it up with a personal experience and it's something which I think a lot of people will resonate with. So, yeah, yeah, good response. Uh, Jacob, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Um, thank you so much for giving me all these insights on what it's like to be a comedian. Thanks, man. Uh, best of luck for your future and, uh, yeah, I'll come check you, check you out sometime soon. Please do. Thank you very much, Ricky. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 